Evening Hope Church. Let's open up to 1 John chapter 2 as we finish off the chapter and go into chapter 3 as well. I'd love to get to know you if I haven't already. Uh, if you are, are not a regular and you're visiting or if you've been a few times and you're checking us out, I'd love to be able to talk to you afterwards. We will be having a Q&A after the service for about uh, half an hour as we, we chuck that up on YouTube and whatever else. So you can ask live questions about the sermon or about just about any topic you please. Um, so stick around for that as well. First John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to be starting from 28 and going through to chapter 3, verse 10. What we've been seeing so far as we look back over First John chapter 2 is that uh, 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 John has spoken in, in the first opening verses that he, he's writing so that pe- the Christians of, of Ephesus, the Christians in that old uh, ancient town and city, that they might have joy, that they might enjoy the fellowship that they have with God. It's, it's not as if he's writing so that they can have the fellowship. They have that fellowship by merit of being united to Christ by faith in the Spirit. However, he's writing that they would enjoy that fellowship, that they would understand the riches that are theirs in the gospel, that they would be able to fully comprehend what blessings there are in the Spirit. And then he st- spends a couple of uh, uh, paragraphs outlining those things which are in are dangers to our fellowship with God. Those things which are dangers to the actual uh, fact that we might be in, in fellowship with God, those things that are, that are danger to people's salvation, and those things which are dangers to any Christian's enjoyment of God. He, he spoke about living in sinful lifestyles. He spoke about loving the world, hating your brothers and sisters. And last week we spoke about antichrists, which is really false teachers. He's been speaking about what things damage our fellowship, what things degrade our joy in our fellowship. And now he's talking about in in what opens up chapter 3, the source and the effect of our true fellowship with God by the Holy Spirit. He's basically showing them how to live in fellowship with God and why we live in fellowship with God. And, and why we live, of course, in fellowship with Christians and in a holy lifestyle uh, opposed to the Antichrist. So you sort of see this, this trifecta on both sides of the line now, that we are, we are living uh, 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 in holiness, in love with the brothers and sisters, and in fellowship with God, as opposed to living in sin, in hatred towards our brothers and sisters, and after the pattern of the Antichrist in deception. And falsehood. So he's setting up the glorious stones that make up the foundation of the Christian life now as we begin chapter 3. So I'm going to read, and what you're going to see is that he's really giving reasons or motivations for living pure, sinless, holy lives to the glory of Jesus. And he's going to say three things. In essence, he'll, he'll start saying to look forward. This is how we're going to break up our time. That he's going to say, look forward to the future that we have certain set for us because of Jesus. Look at backwards what, what Jesus did on the cross for us, what he has already accomplished. And then look now. Look at what you are living in because of the gospel of Jesus. Look forward, look back, and look now. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 28 onwards to chapter t- uh, 3 and verse 10. Hear now the word of the living and true God. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born from him. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May God bless to us his own powerful word this evening. <clears throat> John starts out by looking back to all that Jesus has done for us, but, but by looking back, he's really deflected forwards. When he starts in verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from shame at his coming. Then look at verse 2. He speaks of the same theme. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we're going to be, what, what we're going to turn into, the full glory of what children of God will look like, has not yet appeared. We just don't know what we're going to be like. But when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There is an expectation in the Christian religion that is not just backwards looking, that is not just confidence of certain truths and ideologies, but is absolutely certain and in fact built around what we believe to be happening in the future. When we talk of, of hope, and John does that, Paul often will speak of the hope that is there for the believers. James will speak of the hope yet to be revealed. Peter speaks all over of the, the hope that we have. They're not meaning hope, like our friends mean hope, like I hope I get to travel interstate for Christmas, I hope my car makes it on the empty light, I hope I get a good uh, a mark on my uh, assignment or whatever, as if hope was some kind of verb that can be increased or decreased, that it's really, it's in me, it's a desire, it's a wish, it's a crossed fingers. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope. It uses the word Hope most, most essentially as a noun. It's something that is reality. It's just not seen yet. Hope can be well described simply as being faith in the future. Uh, faith is presently believing something because God said it that we just can't see right now. Jesus is on his throne at the Father's hand. He is making righteous and pouring out by the Spirit anyone who puts their faith in him. The Holy Spirit gathers with us to strengthen us as we open the word together. Amen? 
All of that is true, but we see no part of that physically. That's faith. Those are things that we we receive by spirit-given faith. But hope is things that we have faith in, but that are going to happen in the future. So we think of our our resurrection bodies is referred to as hope. We we think of the new creation where God does away with everything that is uh, corrupted by sin and the curse. And he creates the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we hope for. The inheritance we're going to receive, that's what we hope for. But this hope is not a wish. It is a confident hope. We know it. We just can't currently see it before us. But we know it to be true. I wonder if that's how you think of the future. If that's how confidently and absolutely assuredly you consider those future things that the Bible speaks of. And whether it creates in you a sense of hope. But the essence of what our hope is, uh, the great shining jewel in the crown of what the future holds for any true Christian, the thing that our heart stirs for and longs for and yearns for is the fact that the future beholds the physical sight of Jesus Christ when faith is obliterated. You won't need any faith anymore. You will see it in the full. You will see all the truth that you have ever believed in the flesh of Jesus Christ, no longer to believe in that which you have not seen. And John talks about that. Look in verse uh, 28. He says, uh, really, the, the event, the thing that is major, that is primary, that is fundamental for Christian hope is Jesus coming, us seeing Jesus. So in verse 28, he says, uh, when he appears, then he talks about being, uh, being shrinking back from him because he's right there at his coming at the end of verse 20, 28. All we see in verse 2, again, uh, he talks about when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him. This is the essence of the Christian hope. This is what you look forward to above everything else, above no longer being sick, above no longer having to get up early at the alarm clock after a late night to go in for a shift, above uh, dirty nappies, above anything else that we're hoping for, that we're longing for. The thing that we long for is the physical presence of Jesus Christ that we see with our own eyes. But what John gets at here, and where where he starts taking off, because this, of course, he's talking about what we're seeing in a way to motivate holiness. And so what we need to see is the pattern that the New Testament makes between seeing and becoming. I want to show to us that in the the, uh, uh, New Testament, there is a relationship between beholding and becoming. In fact, we're, we're even told by modern psychologists, I'm not quoting them, I didn't learn this from them, but they're slowly catching up to the Bible. They will say things like, you will become what you behold. You're, you're, you're so focused and watching violent criminal movies, you know, you will start manifesting anger and whatever in your heart, and so the psychologists go on. But, but we can appropriate that in the, in the original text of the Bible, that it shows us What we look at, what we longingly, spiritually behold is the thing that your soul is taking shape after. It's the thing that you behold, which your heart, your soul, your spirit is is conforming itself to. So go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as we see Paul speak to this notion. (coughs) Seeing is 
becoming. Now, this starts at the very beginning of our, uh, of our Christian life when faith itself, that first faith flooding into the heart so that we believe in Jesus, that's pictured as seeing Jesus, even though nobody who believes in Christ these days does so because they saw the physical Jesus. He doesn't physically manifest to anybody after the apostles now. So, so this is a spiritual sight. But look at verse 6. <clears throat> well, actually, look back at verse 4. Got to be careful not to preach a sermon out of 2 Corinthians 4 now. It's tempting. But uh, in verse 4, he's saying that the reason people are unregenerate, the reason they are not saved, is because they can't see Jesus which is an analogy of having faith. Look in verse 4. He says, In their case, the unbelievers, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, blinded their minds. You see that this is not a physical blinding. He has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then he says in verse 6, on the contrary, but God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's a reference to Genesis 1, let there be light, God said, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that to, to Paul, he, he's drawing the dynamic that, that to be unbelieving is to be blind, is to be unable to see, but faith is pictured as seeing. When God, by his power, shines light into your heart, unblinds your mind, gives you spiritual eyes to see the glory of his son put forth in the gospel where he bled and died for sinners to make them righteous before a holy God. It's Therefore, faith is seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus for the first time translated us into his kingdom and made us saved. But then we can see again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul speaks to them and, and, and he's rebuking them for having gone astray into heresy about the gospel. And he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your own eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now this is half a generation removed from Jesus' actual death. This is half a country away from where Jesus was actually crucified. There's no reason to believe that anyone in Galatia, other than well, not even Paul, unless he was there on that day in Jerusalem. But no one in Galatia would have actually been there and seen the public portrayal of Jesus. If there was, it was a handful, and it gives no, re no, no credit to them. Paul be able to say to the whole church, you saw him crucified. What's he referring to? He's referring to those missionary journeys that he himself took when he came to Galatia. And when he preached Jesus in the power of the Spirit and they heard by faith, he's saying that when you spiritually saw and I spiritually preached, that was Jesus Christ put on display before your spiritual eyes as publicly crucified, dying for sinners. That's what he means. To hear and believe the gospel is to see Jesus crucified. So faith, again, is sight. And then we can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which is just uh, back from the chapter I was showing you earlier. Just a few verses, very much on the same topic. Uh, Paul says, 
that unlike those who have veiled faces, right, they're blind, but they also have masks over their face, they can't see in a double portion. He says, unlike them, we can see. And like Moses, if you remember the, the tale of the Old Testament, who went up onto the mountain to meet with God, receive the law, commune with him, and receive the teachings. And as he came down off the mountain, the, the Israelites were afraid because his face was glowing. He had sort of caught a, a, a semblance or a, a radiation from the glory of God. And the Israelites were so afraid that they said, Moses, put a, put a balaclava on, wear a mask, wear a veil. We don't like this. It's fearful. And so he put it on so that they couldn't see that it was passing away and fading. He was embarrassed or maybe he was worried what they might think if the glory of God is, is going from one degree to a lesser degree in their leader. What could that mean? What, what faith and trust might he lose in them? We don't know all of his reasonings, but what Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, and we all, not just one of us up on a mountain, not just the pastor, not just the missionary, Every single Christian, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. That's what Moses wasn't even allowed to see, but we see it in the gospel of Jesus. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image. What we are beholding is what we are becoming. And he says, not that we go from one great first glimpse of Jesus by faith when we first got saved and then sadly sanctification and life is really the process of sort of fading from that initial first joy and love. No, not in the new covenant. In the new covenant, Paul says that we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So again, we see this dynamic that, first of all, faith is seeing. To believe is to spiritually see, but also the reality that to behold and see is to become like. It happens at faith. When you first believe, you become like Jesus in that you're forgiven, in that you're righteous, in that you're, you're born of him, you're entered into his family, you're in his kingdom. But it's ongoingly so as well, that in your life, as much as you behold him, you are transformed progressively, bit by bit, one degree to another, which is never as fast as we want to go. We, we want to go from, from right angle to right angle, skipping 90 degrees at a time until we've made a, a full 360 turn in a matter of days, but God gives us one degree a day. But it is a reality because it's the Spirit who is the Lord who is doing it. And we come back to 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 3, the, the language that he uses, <clears throat> sorry, 1 John chapter 2 and 3, <laughs> I'm wrong. Chapter 3, verse 2, shows us that he has this same idea in mind. He says, Beloved, we are children now. We are God's children now already. We're not waiting for the day when we become God's children. We are his children, but we don't look like... Well, we're not in our finished state yet. We've got room to grow. No one's going to fail to amen that. We've got a ways to go. All of us are in the middle and really at the beginning stages of our sanctification and Christ-likeness. We all have far to go. But what he says is, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, what we do know, is that the moment he's back, 
When Jesus appears with his angels, the trumpet goes, 1 Corinthians 15 says. The the last moments of history is Jesus coming back with his righteous ones in heaven, coming back and all the Christians on earth that see him are resurrected into that glorious final body. He says, we shall be like him, not, and we shall see him like he is. He doesn't say the two things, we're going to see him and we'll be like him. He says we will be like him because of the relationship that God has woven into our relationship with Jesus that beholding is becoming. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. There's a law, an unavoidable law and pattern laid down in your Christian life that, that God has put in and we, uh, the sooner we learn it, the, 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 the happier we will be in our holiness is that the degree to which we behold him is the degree to which we become like him. That last moment, that last day on earth when Jesus comes back, we'll be like him because we saw him perfectly. Well, the, the principle applies then that every day that you behold him more, every time through the commentaries and through the, through the theological textbooks and through conversations with your friends and through reading the Bible and prayer and coming to church, every time that some of the, 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 the misunderstanding of Jesus, every time some of the, the cobwebs around the gospel start getting pulled off and the picture of Jesus in the gospel starts being clarified for us, we are becoming like him more and more and more. In that day, we will be sinless, we will be perfectly glorified, we will be sealed in perfection so that no one can ever fall again and have a Genesis 3, 2.0. We will be sealed, we will be crowned, and we will receive in that day a perfect, undying, infinite, eternal inheritance. So this is how our life goes. That you can, you can look back, and this is your testimony. If you're a Christian, you saw Jesus And so you became like him in salvation. Throughout your life, the more you have seen him in the word, you have become like him in your life. And eventually you will see him finally and become like him perfectly. Therefore, verse 3 makes perfect sense. At least to me, I hope I've communicated to you. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who thus has that understanding of their future trajectory, Everyone who understands that principle and that relationship between me beholding Jesus and me becoming like him, and since he's coming back and I'll behold him perfectly, I'll become like him perfectly, everyone who understands that gets busy now in becoming like him through beholding him. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Don't you love that as much as that puts burden on us, like maybe we want to we want to go heavy onto uh, uh, the sovereignty of God and say, as a Calvinist, I need to take problem with what John just said, because I don't actually make myself pure. I've also corrected what Jude said when he said to keep yourself in the love of God. I've corrected that because it's actually God who does that, right? We, we need to not misunderstand what they're saying, that they do put a large onus of responsibility on the Christian, that you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God, you're strong, you've overcome the evil one, you know him who is from the beginning, John has already said to the church, saying you purify yourself. You're not hopeless and helpless anymore. You must purify yourself through the means God has given in his word, in the church, through prayer, fellowship, and sacraments. But isn't it glorious that he didn't say 
and everybody who thus hopes makes himself pure, then he is pure. He didn't say that. He didn't say purity or speak of holiness as something that is at the moment outside of your reach, outside of your nature, beyond your experience. But if you get there, there's a long ladder, a couple of rope things to climb, a few tunnels to go through and mountains to traverse. But if you get there, then you'll be pure. If you purify yourself, you'll be declared pure as you will make yourself pure. He doesn't say that. He says, everyone who thus hopes purifies himself because already he understands that in Jesus Christ, he is in some degree pure. Become who you are is the constant uh, uh, proclamation of the New Testament apostles. Become who Jesus made you. Be more of who you are. Be more of what God turned you into. Be more consistent with your nature. And then we can look at what Jesus did in the past. So that's our future that is coming, that is glorious. And we can look at what Jesus did in the past. We see in verse 1, and we have to love this about John, that you just never more than a few verses, no matter how hard he pushes the law on us, he's just never more than a few verses away from just extrapolating and exploding into a glorious praise and doxology about how great and glorious the love of God is for us. He, he, he won't uh, push onto us uh, on holiness for too long before he starts reminding us of the advocate and the propitiation and the righteous one that we have in Jesus through the gospel. He's never far away from reminding us about the finished work of Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That, that see what kind, that, that, that's a, uh, the kind there is like the sort of word you would use about a, a foreign element coming into a marketplace in, in their day. In the Greek, it's, it's like, see what alien element this is. See what foreign goods has arrived. Look at this. It is totally unlike us, away from us, originating from something other than us. Look at this. You can, you can imagine a guy who's got some amazing uh, 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 delivery to his doorstep. He starts opening it. He, he can't comprehend what's in it. It's, it's, and he just starts calling all of his neighbors and his friends to come and look. Come and see. Check this out. I was uh, reading Spurgeon's uh, sermon on the, uh, the text that we're in this evening. And he, he makes a point that when men and women go and look at something beautiful, they talk about it. A painting that you don't understand, but you try and sound smart, or, or a piece of music that, that some people have said has won awards, so you know you, you try and talk about it, a bit of critique, you go to a movie, it was beautiful, you walk out and you talk about it. You want to you sort of pull it apart and assess it and, and speak about it as if by your words you add to some level of its beauty. She says, but things that are extremely beautiful, rarely beautiful, uniquely beautiful, divinely beautiful, People don't talk about. They just say, look. I mean, I mean, when's the last time that you heard somebody on the, the, the foot of the Grand Canyon or looking up uh, on a camping trip the, at the amazing galaxy that we can see and say, hmm, have a seat and, and let me tell you about my, my view of the galaxy and the relationship, I think, between the gravitational pulls in this star and that star or why I think some appear in a flickering nature or some in a brighter... No, they just rightfully shut up and look, and, and all they can say to other people, if they say anything, is, guys, check it out. Look at that. And that's what John does in verse 1. He says, see, look. We've just covered that beholding is becoming, and then he says, guys, 
behold. Look, just stare. Spurgeon says, dig, for there is gold nuggets here for everyone that spends time to do so. Bring your shovels, bring your drills, and sit here at the foot of the cross and continue to dig into all of its glories. Look and see and wonder, and look and see and wonder the kind of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What a glorious and amazing nature reality of this gospel, that we are called children of God. It would have been an amazing grace. And we would have had reason to sing every Sunday of amazing grace. What God gave to us after we died was sheer nothingness. And you passed into an eternal sleep, never to be conscious again. That would have been an infinite grace. It would have been amazingly gracious. We would have had more reason to sing if he had sort of turned us into some low-level scum angel so that, so that once we die, we, we get busy for the kingdom and we start serving the Christians in the spiritual realm and, and after a long way of service in, in that way, then we die. Or, or if we had been ushered into heaven after we die, but again, it was on the outskirts, we sort of keep the grime off of the golden streets and, and we wear the apron and we wear the dirt and, and that's us, the slaves of heaven. That would have been glorious grace to be able to just work as a slave in that glorious celestial place of joy. But John says that we're children. And we're not just put there on the lowest rungs. We're not just allowed in. We have a right to be there. In fact, I'll say this, heaven cannot begin its glorious joys until you're there. You're a child. It requires you to be there for the king and the elder brother to receive the praise they want. They have so, so adopted you into the family, which is what we'll look at next, but that you have so become a rightful adopted child by nature and by legal transaction into the family of God that all we can do is say, look and wonder at the kind of love that God has poured out onto us, that we should be his children. <clears throat> Spurgeon says this is an undeserved love because no one can claim to deserve the childhood of Jesus Christ. Even perfection, even if you're a perfect human, that doesn't mean that you had a right to demand that you would be called a child. It just means that you don't go to hell. It's an undeserved love. Spurgeon says it's an everlasting love because it'll never be undone. It's an infinite love, he says, because it comes from the Father himself. Which John 16 verse 27 says, when Jesus says, the Father himself loves you. This love has been born, not bought by Jesus. We're going to get ourselves into all sorts of errors if we think that when Jesus went to the cross, he made you lovable by God. He made you loved by God. He purchased the love of God for you. That's not what happened. He proved the love of God for your sorry, sinful, hopeless, evil, guilty, sinning state as you are. Jesus did not do something that, that convinced the Father, okay, I'll forgive them. Jesus' coming was the outpouring of the love of God, for God has so loved the world, this sinning, guilty, unrighteous world, rebelling against him, that he gave his one and only Son, so that those who he loved, but yet righteously had to judge, he could receive into eternal life. And whoever received him would not die, but have eternal and everlasting life. 
What Jesus has done is not twist God's heart, but reveal God's true heart towards us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so doing this, he's just looking back on all that Jesus has done for us. And that is the prime, the, the foremost, the supreme motivation for any Christian to start walking in sinlessness and in holiness, imperfect though we are, striving forwards for holiness. God has made me his son. But secondly, we see, and there's, there's a bite to what John says next. Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 5, and then we'll skip to verse 8. He says, you know that he appeared, this is Jesus, he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So who Jesus is and what he came to do was take away sin. Verse 8, that the, uh, the, the last half of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. But if we can, we can put these two things together, that what Jesus came to do was take away sins, which is the same thing as coming in order to destroy, overcome, bring to nothing the works of the devil. How much of a, a bite is it, therefore, for a Christian, maybe a false teaching Gnostic or who has come to believe, or maybe anyone here today who wants to believe that there's, there's some everlasting life for me, there's some forgiveness of sins for me, but I and my loved ones or my relationship or my lifestyle can remain as sinful as we are. We can remain as, as, as in the darkness and in the, in the black sludges of sin. I'm just going to believe in the future salvation and I'll, I'll just voluntarily not be one of those Christians who is wrapped up into holiness and righteous living. John leaves no room for that. He says sinning, not only is it lawlessness, which he says there in verse 4, he says it's the devil's bidding. There is no neutrality here. It's not as if you can be a Christian but live your life in sin. Jesus gets it. It's a lifestyle choice. No, it's the devil's work. And that's the things that he came to destroy. You are on his team. You are living like the family of God or you are symbolizing, manifesting, copying the devil himself. There's just no, no middle room that John leaves for us. How much of a bite it would be to the false theologians or to false Christians even today to believe that what, the way I'm actually living is living after the devil's pattern. But the second part of what he must be saying here is that Jesus didn't fail. Well, we, we, we just will hardly amen that Jesus didn't fail his mission, right? Amen on that? Jesus did not come trying to destroy the works of the devil, fail and scoot on out, secret little ascension so that no one could see him going and get him again. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus came and accomplished what he was sent to do, which is destroy the power and the works of the devil. And the implications of that are the whole church age, that we will see that unfold throughout history. But, yet as it is, Whatever stage of the Christian life or of church history that you are in, verse, chapter 1, verse 17 stands true, that the darkness is fading away, the light has come, it is shining. Chapter 2, verse 13, 14 is true, that you have, by faith, overcome the evil one. And Jesus did not fail what he came to do. He has destroyed the works of the devil. We're reminded again in this that there's no room in the Christian life to start saying, I would be holy. I tried to be holy. I wanted to be holy. I prayed that God would help me overcome sin. 
but there just wasn't power enough for me. I guess I was mission impossible. There just wasn't enough spiritual sustenance and help for me. I'm just too engaged and locked and, and addicted in this sin that I have. Paul John says, not a chance. As Romans 6, verse 13 and 14 even says, do not present your members, your body parts, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Why? Why must you do that? Why does Paul and John and I believe that you can actually do that, live a life of holiness, honoring to God? Because, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. It's not as if sin can run rampant, because you're not under law, you're under grace. Rather, under the law, you're powerless, it condemns you, it binds you up for condemnation. But in grace, you are empowered. In grace, the Lord has destroyed the works of the devil. In grace, you have overcome the evil one. In grace, the word of God abides in you and you are strong to overcome the temptations and the trials and the temptations of the devil. He came and he did it. He won. He overcame the devil. <clears throat> we cannot claim, therefore, to be his handiwork. If verse 5 is true, he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. We cannot claim, therefore, to, to be in him and to be like him if we are filled with sin, if we have a pattern of our lifestyle that is sinful. We can't claim to be his handiwork, the thing he came to create out of, a, out of a sinful mess of a lifestyle that rebelled against God's law. What he's created is a sinful, rebellious lifestyle that rebels against his law. No, his handiwork, what he came to do was take away sins. Therefore, if we are those he has worked on, if we are those that he has met and redeemed and saved before whom he was publicly proclaimed as crucified, then we will be those who follow in a pattern of righteous living as we behold him and follow after him imperfect as all of our walks will be. And then I love that he looks to our nature. We, we've looked forward to the future. We've looked back to what Jesus has done. And he looks, I don't want to say looks inward because I, I never want to command or tell Christians, look inside of you for the power or look inside of you to see whether you're saved. I mean, you'll always be horribly misled that yes, in me is the power. I'm, I'm a demigod. Or you'll look inside, you see nothing but sin and fall into wallowing helplessness. And yet, I'm not saying look into you. I'm saying look into the word and what it says about you. Look into the nature of a Christian that God tells us in the word. So look into the Bible about you. And the Bible tells us that we are children of God. He, he said this back in verse 1. The, the theme keeps on coming up. <coughs> but we're children of God in two ways. There's very distinct, very important we understand the distinction in these two doctrines. The children of God, the, the sons and daughters of God, come in, in, through these, these two uh, doctrines that go hand in hand but are distinct. One is regeneration and one is adoption. One has to do with our nature, what, what the Holy Spirit did to us when we were saved and making us alive, and the other one has to do with our legal standing and the inheritance that we rightfully have because of the gospel. The adoption of God in our lives, that he adopts us and makes us children, changes nothing about your actual lived experience except that knowing it informs how you live. 
but the actual act of adoption doesn't change physically, spiritually, anything in you. It's about you in the legal courts of God. But regeneration is your nature being changed by the power of God. In Titus 3, it's called regeneration, which really just means to be made again. To generate is to create regeneration. Uh, John 3 calls it being born again. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5 calls it uh, having a new nature. This is the reality that we go, we pass from being natural under the fallen flesh, uh, or what 1 Corinthians 2 will talk about being a natural person, thinking with a fleshly mind, and we become a spiritual person. You don't physically change, you remain the body you are, but you become in a spiritual sense alive. Or it's the, the, the prophets would speak of this nature of going from a heart of stone that could not respond to God. No matter how many times you, you try and pump blood into it, it just does not move, does not respond to God, stays rock solid in its sin, and yet it becomes in regeneration a pumping, responsive, life-giving heart of flesh, Ezekiel says. Regeneration is receiving a new nature. It, it changes our desires our mind, our heart, our delights, and our power over temptation. It's the reality that God gave us a new heart with new affections such that you cannot help but, if you've been enacted on by the Holy Spirit, you cannot help but to love the things you used to hate and hate those things you used to love. Though in both realities, they, they still tempt you when they shouldn't. There's still a, there's still a taste a, that you wish to enjoy, but in the deepest Caverns of your heart, you desire and delight. If God could give it to you in a moment, the answer to any prayer, you would ask, Lord, make me perfect. Just, just remove this sin that I hate so much. Nothing is more sweeter and nothing brings more happiness to the true children of God than holiness. That's regeneration. And we see that in verse 29 when he says, If you know he is righteous, you may be sure that any, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So now we're talking born again language. Children of God by nature. Or in verse 9 he's going to say, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. There is absolutely watertight ethical implications that can be drawn if somebody is born by God's power they will leak out at least a little bit of that power over sin. And all the more as God draws them forward by his word. But then we see adoption. This, is, this comes up in Galatians 4, Romans 8, and John chapter 1. And this has to do with our legal standing before God. This is where the, the Puritans used to write and say, the judge of God, who in our justification declares us righteous in our union with Christ, that he imputes Christ's righteousness to our account, declares that we are righteous and free from all condemnation, that judge then throws down his gavel, takes off his hat, walks over and signs the adoption papers to take you home to his room, to his own house, calling you a child, not just a plaintiff that's been justified. This is the legal status of every person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. You are joined into receiving the inheritance of God that has been earned by Jesus Christ. This is why in John chapter 1, verse 12, he actually says, to all those who did receive him, God gave to them the right to become children of God. It's not just a whim. It's 
not just a, a wish. It's not just a, an analogy. It's a righteous right, a, a legal right that you have. You have an inheritance. You have a declaration signed in blood that you must receive it. You will receive all that your older brother Jesus has earned and bled and died for. And we see this in verse uh, 1 and 2 there when he talks about uh, being children of God, therefore we're hated, and children of God, and therefore we have the inheritance. He talks about in verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. He's talking about somebody who's been made righteous and adopted will be living righteously because one of the family obligations. Anybody who's in the family through adoption, who, who had faith in Jesus because they were regenerated. Every single one who claims a portion in the inheritance to come has an obligation to start showing the family traits in our life. This is the pursuit of every son that loves his father. I want to be like my dad, if they're a good dad. This is the pursuit of every young girl to the mother that is loved and godly, is that I want to be like my mother. There's nothing that, that stirs up in a healthy family's atmosphere that says, I just wish with all that I am to destroy the reputation, ruin the standing and inheritance and wealth of my family. Where that happens, it's a, it's a heart-breaking reality to be sure, but not in God's family. In God's family, every child born again has received an inheritance, has been made righteous in his son, and he will, John says, in the most black and white terms, he will show a life bit by bit, and in relation to how much he beholds his older brother Jesus, he will become righteous and live righteous. We conclude here with verse 10, which is John's conclusion, and he, he cannot make it more black and white. He cannot squeeze the two sides together such that there is no middle room. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 8 is saying the same thing. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But friends, God has been righteous. God has been loving from the beginning. Anyone born again by his spirit, anyone declared one of his children is evident. It's obvious. It's visible. It's manifesting. He will live righteously. He will love his brother and sister. <clears throat> so friends, we have to ask if you're a Christian, is this how you would, despite the sin, and we'll always go back to chapter 2, of course, he's writing this so we don't sin, but if you do sin, we have, a, we have an advocate, we have a righteous one, we have the propitiation for our sins, that's, that's true, but what is your relationship with righteousness? Are you starting to look like the Father? Is your, is your life, however long you've been saved, is it a process of painful and progressive warfare against sin? The, we don't need to worry as if, if we have some kind of pain from sin and, and we keep on getting bloody knuckles and this fight is hard. I don't want anybody coming to me and going, I'm fighting against sin and I don't see perfection yet. Should I be 
worried as if, as if we could go to some war-torn spot where there's frontline fighting and, and we find a guy who's, who's, who's taken a town and with his battalion they've, they've put out the enemy but there's still some around and, and he starts coming into the medic tent and bleeding, gushing out blood from an arm and saying, I must be one of the enemy. Look, I'm wounded. I'm not perfectly winning this battle. We would encourage and say, this is, this is the wound. This is the cost. This is the process of of the war that God commands you to fight. But if you start to make excuses and say, it just doesn't matter that I take shots at my brothers. It just doesn't matter that I flag the, wave the enemy's flag. It just doesn't matter that I wear their uniform and push back the works of righteousness. That is an altogether new story. What's your relationship with righteousness, friends? If you're here tonight and you've come to a conclusion that if, as we've been going through 1 John, there is, there is no way that you can take the word of God as true and then affirm that you are a born-again Christian. What do you do? Where do you go? How do you deal with the fact that your sin is still in your account and you still must pay it in hell were you to die? Friends, the, the call of Jesus that has been rich throughout First John is that he is your forgiveness. Simply receive him by faith. And there's no list of do's and don'ts that come after that in order to make you saved. Tonight, the simple good news is believe on Jesus as you are. I love, and I'll finish here and then pray, I love a story that Spurgeon used to tell of a, of a, uh, a painter in London who would paint landscapes. He would paint cityscapes, and he had a series of going around London and painting with oil paints the most beautiful pictures of sort of sights to see in London. And one of the areas that he'd gone was a very famous, well-known street, and there was a man there who'd been working about 30 years as a street sweeper. He was a filthy guy, but he was a friendly guy, and everybody knew him, and everybody said g'day to him, and, and it would feel wrong, the painter said, to get a snapshot of this in paint and not include the street sweeper. And so he walked up to him one day and he said, I want you to come to the studio. I, I want to catch your likeness. I want to get you close up so that I can put you into the painting. And that man, being, being quite thrilled with his invitation, asked for a few days' delay, rocked up to that studio and was turned away. Because he came upon invitation. But he had come well showered, suited up, polished shoes, unrecognizable from the man that was invited. The painter said to him, I, I didn't invite you here to be something better than you were. I didn't want to bring you in to show my painting skills as somebody that you're not. I asked you to come as you were. And if you don't come like that, I will not have you. And that is the call of Jesus Christ to you, sinners, if you are not in Christ. God doesn't want you and he won't accept you if you add to his salvation your own good works your own polished life, just come with the sin that he can see, that he knows about, that you need to confess, but not to teach him. He will receive, cleanse, forgive, make reborn, and adopt you as you are, for God is a gracious Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, how amazing and unspeakably glorious is the love that you have poured out on us, that you have given to us in the person of your Son, the Messiah Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we have an eternity ahead filled with inheritance and filled with blessings and filled with glory undeserved from us. But, Lord, we thank you that it's everlasting, for it will take that long to give back to you the praise that you deserve. We thank you, God, that you are so gracious to us that, that as we come in and we, we have had a, a, a week that has been tainted with more sin than it ought to have been, 
as we come in and, and we have not been making the, the right use of the means of grace, that we have been slack, that though life is hard, we have been making excuses for, for not reading the word of God, not, not praying as we should. Lord, Lord, I pray that, that that great price that Christ has paid, that that great salvation that he has wrought, that the great spirit that you have given to us in the gospel, the, the amazing things that you have done would empower and vitalize and encourage those Christians to, again, stir up in themselves the, the keeping themselves pure through the word of God. I pray, Lord, that anybody tonight who sits here and is impure, not just in practice, but is impure to their soul, that has not yet been born again, that has not yet been declared righteous, that has not yet been forgiven, and that has not yet been adopted into your family, Lord, would you give to them this evening a new heart of faith? Do what they cannot do, what no man or woman can do for them. Give to them a new spirit. Make them a new creation. Give to them faith to believe and be saved. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for all of your glorious works in the gospel. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.